You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Good morning. I don't, uh, I don't get the cool sermon video intro because it wouldn't fit with what I'm preaching on today. If you've got your bulletin, you get a limited edition pre-print release of next week's sermon unintentionally. And there are some note spaces on the back if you want to scribble down on that. Wade uh, called up this morning. He's feeling quite under the weather or he would be here. It was unexpected or we would have put a little, more, little bit more thought into the slides and screens and everything. We already had everything ready to go for this Sunday morning, so forgive us for that. But be in prayer for him, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We're calling this uh, Normal Discipleship. And since we have been focused on D groups and discipleship and creating intentional communities for discipleship to take place, I thought it'd be a good place to talk for a week. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand for the reading of Luke chapter 14, verse 25, and we'll go through verse 35. Please listen as we read. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you? Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We pray that as we look at your word, we will be fed by it. That's all I could pray to speak it is that I would feed others with it. And all I could pray for the hearers is understanding of hard sayings in the Gospel of Luke. We pray that as we magnify Jesus, as we worship him, that we'll listen with an obedient and ready heart to hear his voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, discipleship. Discipleship growing up was synonymous with Sunday night. Being a, uh, a good Southern Baptist, you had, you know, Wednesday night was RAs, that was fun. That's where we got in fights and played football. Later, when you get in youth, that's where you get to, you know, hear cool music. You go into a different building, the youth pastor teaches. You sneak food in. You know, it was, it was fun, too. Sunday morning was church, and, you know, it wasn't optional for me growing up whether or not I would go. My mom would pour cold water on me if I didn't wake up in time to go. But Sunday night was discipleship training. And in my age group, nobody went to that. We avoided that place like the plague. Have no idea what went on there, but it wasn't for us. Well, fast forward a little bit to my teenage years, and uh, the Lord saved me when I was 15. And so if the doors of the church were open at that point, I was in. I wanted to hear more of God's word. I wanted to be more around his people. And I wanted answers to questions that I didn't even know I had in my head before that point. And so this little thing called discipleship training was sitting there. And by that point, we had a youth group that would meet before discipleship training, but then we would all run home, you know, escape quickly. Unless you got the dreaded task of reading the Bible in the evening service, you were gone. So you didn't know what discipleship training was still. Well, I wanted to know more. I wanted anybody who would sit down with the Bible and teach me, good or badly, um, I would listen. And so I went to discipleship training I remember sitting in a bunch of classes with people average age, 85 plus, cramming for finals. And in these classes being taught stuff that I thought to myself, this is so good. Why, why is this not like not only on Sunday night? And so we get into this idea where we have discipleship as a time, as a program, as a select group of people who you know, from the outside, look, they don't have anything better to do. Oftentimes in the church, we throw it around like a buzzword. It's a time slot. We program around it. We outsource it. We bring people in to disciple us. Or we export it. We send a group to go be discipled on a mission trip and come back and tell us how we should be. Sometimes we import a group to tell us this, but we often don't cultivate it inside the church very well. It just takes a time slot, and only the brave go to discipleship training. Well, we don't have discipleship training. We have first essentials. First essentials, uh, when we started that, uh, became something. We wanted something for anybody who wanted to learn more about the faith, and it, it served a purpose, and, and now we're kind of pivoting to D groups, and what we don't want to happen is just another program that we hatch or read in a book somewhere and try to foist upon a church that has a three to five year useful cycle until we find something else to put there. That's not what we want to do with D groups. So in our text, as Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship, I thought it would be helpful for us to just walk through Luke chapter 14. 
If you don't do a D group, if you're going to do a D group, if you've never heard of them and never will hear of them again, this sermon, I hope, will stand in and of itself as just a nice overview of the cost of being a disciple. But if you're doing a D group, or even if you're not, I hope there's something you can take from here, put in your feet, and use just wherever you go. The last thing we want to do, like I said, is just make another program with the word discipleship plastered on it for three to five years until something better comes along. So let's talk. What is a disciple? If we're talking about D groups where we do community discipleship together, what is the product? What's the output? What are we hoping to get out of these groups that we're saying isn't happening elsewhere and that we think led by God needs to happen in our church? I think if we look at what Jesus says a disciple should do and look at how the church throughout the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians and others interpreted his words, we're going to get a good idea of what a D group is aiming at and what we as Christians should be aiming at in our lives. So let's look at our text. This is one of the hard ones. This is one of the ones where you hear it and the first thing you think about is, I'm going to have to get a commentary or someone else to tell me how I don't have to do this because this sounds a little difficult. You know, hate my mother and father and, and renounce everything I have. I thought we were, you know, talking about like be nice to your enemies. We like that part, but this is difficult. And so people have invented uh, ways to get out of this text. They've come up with, uh, would say, mechanisms or theology that tries to just soften the edge of Jesus' words. But I don't think you need to soften this. You just need to let Jesus punch you sometimes. Let his words impact you, even if it's hurtful. Growing up, I would hear people say, well, this passage refers to the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus was teaching the Jewish people during his time on earth, and after his resurrection, you don't have to listen to this anymore. That's the gospel of the kingdom. You're under the gospel of the church, and it's all grace. You just believe and walk with Jesus and be nice to people, and it's okay. This is different. Well, there, there is nothing in this text that tells you or I, first off, that we don't have to listen to it. Second, I can't find any other place in the New Testament that says, by the way, don't listen to Jesus. Can y'all find a place in the New Testament that tells you not to listen to Jesus? So I don't think this text has been snipped out. It's still in my Bible, it's still in your Bible, and I still think we should listen to it. So I'm going to give you a German word, all right, or a German phrase. And uh, you don't need this, um, but it, it describes it. It's called Sitzimlieben, all right? Everything in German sounds cooler. And Sitzimlieben means your situation in life. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom would tell me, don't touch the stove. Later on, when she wanted me to help her clean the dishes and I didn't touch the stove, the ruler came out and she would swat me until I took the dishes off the stove. I could not use her words against her, right? You said, don't touch the stove, mom. She would say, at that point, the stove was hot. I told you not to touch it to not burn yourself. And now you're playing with a different type of fire. Do the dishes. That's Sitzimlieben in every man terms. When you say something, you know that the situation in life explains why it's said. 
If Jesus told these people right here the cost of being a disciple, we have to know what they were up against to really explain to ourselves how we should follow these words of Jesus. So let's, let's look real quick through them and let's, uh, let's understand what were these Jewish people dealing with when Jesus first spoke these words to them. So the first thing to know about Luke at this point is if you don't have to turn there, I'll read it, but back in Luke chapter 9, something changes in the ministry of Jesus. He, he changes what he's doing. He was going around the countryside healing people. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was arguing with religious leaders. And all of a sudden, he decides he's going to go to Jerusalem. Whenever he decides that, something changes in the way that Luke begins to write about Jesus. In fact... This whole section from Luke 9 until the end is, is a long story of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. It says there that he sets his face toward Jerusalem. When he does this, it almost becomes like an invasion. If you could imagine, Jesus has got some crowds around him. He tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. They start buying supplies. They start packing knapsacks. They start heading towards Jerusalem. As he gets closer and closer, more and more people, because they're all going up for the festival, start tagging along with Jesus. And you, you, you wonder if some of them think, you know, this is getting to be a pretty group, big group of people. This almost looks like an army. And so you have in this large crowd that Jesus speaks to in chapter 14, some people who are going up to worship the Lord, but probably also some people who think, it is time to kick out the Romans. They are ready for this Messiah to clean house and set up his kingdom. And they're just going to happen to be there to land the good jobs when it's all said and done, right? Because that's what people who follow you into battle do. On the other side, you have his disciples and the people who are really following him. And if you remember, they still haven't quite figured out how this discipleship thing works. No doubt they're getting tapped on the shoulder a lot. Hey, what's his strategy? What's his next move? Which part of the city are we going to take over first? And they don't know. The crowds are probably asking them questions about Jesus' military strategy. But in every meeting they have with Jesus, he's probably talking about the kingdom of God and how to help the poor and how to uh, deny yourself and take up your cross. And they're just confused. And so verse 25 to these crowds, he just clarifies right here. Verse 26, if anyone, does not come to me, or if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Imagine the cold water that poured on some people's interests right there. You know, they're ready to storm the castle, take the city, and set up the kingdom. And here he basically tells them, this, this isn't about you. In fact, you need to really get over yourself.
in the first situation, the first Sitzim Lieben, the first people who heard these words from Jesus, what did he teach them? If you think about Jewish culture, they didn't have the nuclear family. It was an extended family. You usually lived with your parents or near them well until into your old age where you saw them peacefully, you hope, depart this life, and then you carried on the cycle. Generations, cousins, aunts, uncles, all living in a town together, a community, a community together. You sat at synagogue, half the people in there you were related to, the other half used to be related to you a generation or two ago. And here is Jesus telling his disciples, you know all those people you go to synagogue with, the people you're walking to the festival with right now, unless you hate them, you cannot be my disciple. I imagine some of them, they didn't have commentaries or theologians, but they got really clever with, oh, well, how can we mean something different than hate Jesus? Surely you just mean love it less than this. Yeah, yes, we all, you know how to read your Bible. We know that Jesus does not want you to actively hate your family. We know that he says love your neighbor and love your enemy, so he doesn't want you to actively hate anybody, but the force of his words, don't soften them up. Compared to your connection to Jesus Christ, your next greatest love should look like hate compared to that. Jesus is being very forceful to these people. Then verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. They knew what a cross was. The Romans, whenever they took over a place, made sure everybody in the area knew what a cross was. Oftentimes, during political upheavals, walking through Judea, you would see a field of crosses where the last batch of rebels had been caught and were being crucified in the countryside for days, and then they'd leave them up, just to spite the Jews who thought that was very dishonorable. And here is Jesus, if he were talking to you, he'd be saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your lethal injection and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And then last, verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These people had jobs just like you. We know of Peter, James, John, fishermen. They had a nice uh, fleet of boats on the Sea of Galilee. They probably were pretty well off. Matthew had a nice tax booth, comfortable, not AC, but still pretty comfortable for the times. The other people following him thinking, well, I'll follow him for a while. We go to the festival. His teachings are nice. I like to always hear what people say about the Bible. But after that, I'll just go back to my town and be like, yep, I've listened to our synagogue leader. I've listened to Jesus. I'm a, I'm a well-versed student of the Torah. And here he is telling them to renounce what they have and follow him. What do you think they did when they heard this? What did discipleship look like for them? You go up to Jerusalem. You see Jesus betrayed. 
And he was just in a big group teaching us about all this stuff with this cross and everything. And there he is on a cross. And then you see him die. You see the heavens darken. You see the report of him being resurrected. You see the church begin to grow. What does discipleship look like to the people who first heard these words from Jesus? What would you do living in Jerusalem around there, having heard these teachings and seeing the things that happened? What would you do with your life after it? That brings us to what's called the third situation. So the original hearers are the first situation. Those people who read about it afterwards is what's called third situation. It's, it's helpful because sometimes we like to just say, well, that was for them, not for us. But these words were written down. We believe that. Scripture is perfect. It's inspired. We believe the Holy Spirit directed Luke to include these wherever he learned them in his gospel. They're pretty original words. They're, they're not found this way in Matthew or Mark. So we know that Luke heard them from somebody he interviewed. The Holy Spirit put these in here, and it wasn't just so you could look back and say, look how hard it was for those poor people back in the day to become a disciple. It's a good thing it's easy now. The reason that this story is in Scripture is because you, living in, it was 2022 now, I wrote 2021 the other day on a piece of paper. 2022, you have to confront these words just like they did. You have to come to Jesus and listen to him say, you want to be my disciple? Okay, let's talk about how you're my disciple. Do this, this, and this. We have to deal with these hard teachings the same way they did. And so discipleship for us is going to look a little different, but it's not going to be any easier. Thankfully, we do have other scriptures to help us, and uh, I don't know if I ripped this off Daniel or if I heard it from somewhere else. It was in a conversation a few weeks ago, but the, the phrase came up, if you want to know how to follow the teachings of Jesus, if you want to see, like, what does Jesus want me to do with this, look in the book of Acts. The reason for that is they were the first people who saw this written down or heard it preached, and they obeyed it, and they did what they were supposed to, and it was recorded for us in the book of Acts. So if you are confused about what Jesus says to do, look in the book of Acts. That's the first place. And so we're going to look really quick in some passages in the book of Acts and see how do we, 2022 Christians, need to follow Jesus' original teachings to these Je Jewish disciples who were following him across the countryside. So the first one we're going to look at is found in books uh, in the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So remember there were three things that Jesus taught them to do to be his disciples. One is hate compared to your love for him, reject all other human relationships as binding on you. Do we see in the book of Acts people choosing to identify with Jesus over their own culture, their own heritage, their own family? And the answer is yes. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, we see a couple of stories. One's verse 23. Now, it's talking about the apostles. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests 
and the elders had said to them. Now remember the chief priests and elders told them not to speak in this man's name anymore. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So just recounting some history and talking about, basically, everybody rejected the Messiah. And now, they're rejecting us, and they're they're happy about it. Their own cultural leaders have told them to be quiet. And they're happy. They didn't say, well, you guys, y'all just did a miracle. This is awesome. Y'all come be part of our leadership and tell us what God wants us to do. No, they rejected them. Verse 31, and when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their own culture rejects them. And guess what? They're happy. God shows up, they're filled with the Spirit, and they keep doing it. One more in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution, talking about the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. To think about this, the entire church got kicked out of Jerusalem where they lived and worked and worshipped because they were, they were part of the temple at that time. They met, met at the temple with everyone else. They worshipped at the temple. They were a public part of the religion, but they were kicked out in an instant. They were unhoused from all civil religion in Israel, probably kicked out of their families, many of them, probably had family members who wouldn't talk to them anymore and just watched people take over their house and their possessions as they were kicked out. But it says in uh, the end of verse 3, sorry, the end of verse uh, 2, devout, uh, I'm losing my place here. No, no, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What did they do after they got kicked out of their houses, homes, their city, their church? They kept doing what they were doing. They didn't stop. They didn't go back and apologize and say, you know what? You were right, we were wrong, we misinterpreted the prophets, just take us back. They got to the point where they got kicked out of everything they knew, and they kept preaching the word. Discipleship, identification with Jesus, loving him more than even the relationships you have in your family. You know, discipleship is first a change in identity. It's a change in identity. The people in the book of Acts and the people who Jesus first spoke this passage to had to realize who they were had to be more about who Jesus was than about who their parents were. They had to be more linked to the identity of Jesus than, than the identity of their nation. And they had to be more linked to Jesus than they did their own family and friends.
you know, I think about what that means for me as an American trying to be a disciple of Jesus right now. And our country is a great country, but you know what? The country we wait for is much better. Our forefathers and our leaders, some of them, are great people and worthy of emulation and respect, but Jesus is better. Our laws, our society, our institutions are great, but the law of the Lord is better. It's weird to think about who I am supposed to identify with and connect to based on my identity in Jesus rather than my identity as an American. And the thought came to my head a few years back. We had some, uh, some drama on the international scene, as we often do, and there was a chance that we might have uh, some conflict with North Korea, one of many times that's come up. And I remember thinking, I was talking with somebody, and I said, you know, if you obviously support your own country, but if you go to a war, the hard part as a Christian is there are North Korean Christians living in hiding under the radar. Everything they have hangs on a thread, and if they're found out, they lose everything. And as a Christian, I have more in common with them than my own unsaved relatives. In Christ, I am more connected to a random North Korean Christian than my own blood kin who do not know him. Blood is thick, but his blood is thicker. Family is great. Don't neglect your families. In America, anything, we need to put more time in our family, but Jesus is better. My wife is great. Very great. Jesus is better. My kids are wonderful. I love them. I'd give my life for them. But Jesus is better. All these things, as a disciple, I have to continually say, Jesus is better. There's a story about a Chinese Christian. He was brought in and questioned before the police. And in the questioning, they started telling him how he was being a bad citizen because he's not a good communist. And that by his adherence to these foreign religions, he was weakening Chinese society and should be punished because he was not even a good Chinese anymore. And his response, and this is something, I always try to remember this as an American citizen, his, his response was just, was dead on. He said, no, sir, I'm, I'm not a, a bad Chinese, in fact, for following Jesus. In, in fact... I'm a better citizen because you don't have to arrest me for stealing or fighting or disorderly conduct. I won't murder anybody. I'll take care of my family. You won't have to take care of them. And if someone around me is sick or hurt, I'll help take care of them too. If somebody tries to harm others, I won't just run away and wait for the police. I'll try to stop them because I want to love my neighbor as myself. Because I follow Jesus, I want to be the best citizen I can be. You see, we think that if we stop trying to be the things that define us, 
the things we identify with the most, that we won't be as good of a father, as good of a wife, as good of a mother, as good of a worker, as good of a church member even, as good of a soldier, as good of a worker. But in fact, the opposite's true. When we follow Jesus and our identity is found in him, we are better at those things. The world may not appreciate it, but God will see it and God honors it. Second, the church in Acts. We saw them choosing to follow Jesus over their own family, their own culture, their own nation, their own religion. Do we see people taking up their cross in the book of Acts and following him? And yes, we do. In fact, the entire uh, chapter 7 of the book of Acts is the stoning of Stephen. As you know, Stephen was one of the first deacons. And some problems came up, and instead of backing down and Stephen saying, you know, let's de-escalate, he preached a sermon against the people who uh, came against him. The sermon's pretty long. Uh, chapter 7 of Acts is the sermon. But it basically said, you've never listened to God your whole national existence, Israel. You've always rejected him. And in fact, you've rejected him again. Now you've rejected the Messiah. And instead of realizing that he was using the scriptures to tell them the truth about their heart, they thought it'd just be better to kill him than repent. And so they did. And what does he do at the end? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and he dies. Now that's one story, but we also have in Acts chapter 12, where James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod. We don't have the details, but it, I'm sure James could have run away. James could have hidden. James could have just been a little bit more civil and peaceful as a Christian, but he didn't, and he ended up getting executed. The first people who heard this and the people in the book of Acts both realized that becoming a Christian sometimes can cost you your life or physical safety. If you, once again, look at our country, look at how times are changing, look at other nations around the world, you know this is still true today. A disciple may lose their life working for Jesus. The reason for this is that discipleship is a change in mission. That's the second point. It's not only a change in identity, it's a change in mission. When you're a disciple, your mission changes. You're no longer just living for yourself, living to take care of your family, or living to excel in a profession. You are now living to spread the message of Jesus. You know the old saying that uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and people say that's basically the gospel. It's, it's, it's helpful, but it's not the gospel. The gospel, very simply put, in ancient times, is that Jesus is Caesar. Jesus is kurios. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the ruler. He's the emperor. This message got Christians in trouble in Rome because they believed that Kaiser Curios. Jesus was, or uh, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the leader. Because it was a very political message, they got political repercussions for it, and many of them were executed, not just for preaching, but for attempting to overthrow the government. That was often the charge. So Paul, when he writes his letters to churches, a lot of times is very careful. They don't like revolutionaries. He's like, listen. Live a quiet life. One, one occasion is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so as a Christian living your mission, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
in verse 17, Paul gives normal people like you instructions on how to live as a normal disciple. Uh, He says in uh, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So it's basically saying, what do you do once you're saved? Do you, you know, stop, drop, and roll? Do you, do you just have to live a completely different life? If you want to be a disciple of Christ, how do you live? And he says, well, live the way you were before, but better. At another point in this chapter, verse 20, he, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. When you're called as a disciple, when you want to follow Jesus, just keep doing what you were doing for a job. Your relationship should stay. He does not tell people, go leave your spouse and live in a commune. He tells them, keep doing what you were doing. That's your mission now. Except now you're doing it for Jesus, not just for yourself. At another point, book of Ephesians chapter 4. Don't turn there. I'll just read it really quick. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So don't walk like the Gentiles, but stay where you're at. Stop doing destructive things that are against God, but take care of the things that are around you. You know, a disciple at times has to break with portions of their, own, of their old life, but most discipleship is just continuing what you are doing but doing it for the Lord. A lot of times, uh, I have to give my boys advice. You know, they're not ready for it yet, but I, I do. And I try to tell them, you know, like what to do when they're older. Sometimes they might say something like, you know, I want to go into ministry or I want to do this. And I go, you know what? You do what God wants you to do. Because if God wants you to go be a doctor, if God wants you to go be a teacher, if God wants you to be a plumber, if God wants you to be, you know, anything, you love your neighbor as yourself when you do it and serve him. And whether you're a missionary or whether you are, you know, crunching code for some computer software company, you will be honoring God and he'll be pleased with what you do. Normal discipleship, you don't always change what you do, you change why you do it. Because of that identity with Christ, your mission changes. Now, third, discipleship is a change in ownership. Discipleship is a change in ownership. And in the book of Acts, do we see any time where people renounce their possessions or get rid of them, honoring and serving the Lord? And the answer to that question is yes, we do. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, there are several occasions, but this is the best one. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I had a a friend one time who said that somebody told him this proved that communism was biblical. (laughs) That that's not communism. First off, the government's not taking their stuff and distributing it. They're freely doing it themselves. But second, 
There's a reason this happened here in the book of Acts and nowhere else in Scripture. This is not normative. We don't expect you all to hold everything in common. Um, you know, it's nice when Daniel throws me a coffee every once in a while, but I realize that his stuff is his stuff, my stuff's my stuff. That's the way God would have us to, to operate. But what happens here in the book of Acts is you just had 5,000 people saved at, at the day of Pentecost. And they're from all over the Roman Empire. And they want to stay in Jerusalem and devote themselves to the apostles' teaching for the beginning of this awesome thing, the church, the family of God. And they don't have anywhere to live. They don't have jobs. They had enough food to probably get to Jerusalem and back, but that's going to run out pretty soon. And all of a sudden, you've got 5,000 people from all over the empire needing what? Money. So how does the church solve this? In this unique situation, basically people just said, you know what, I've got an extra field. Take it. I'll sell it and give you the money, and you apostles, you give it to whoever needs it. And you know what, I've, I've got an extra job. This guy can do something. I'm sure he can help me. I'll hire him. They basically started acting like, you know what, this is such a new phase in the life of the church. We've got to do something different. All of my stuff belongs to Jesus anyway. Take it. When you renounce everything you have to the Lord, usually you keep ownership of it, most of it. It's not that you just abandon it and give someone the keys. What you do is you start to use it for his purposes, his goals, his objective. You start to ask questions like, can I better serve somebody else with this money or does it need to stay here? You start to get strategic. In fact, Jesus gives a parable where he talks about how to use unrighteous wealth to gain friends that will welcome you into eternal dwellings in heaven. The, I, the picture basically is, yeah, use your money here to get people saved and then they'll be welcoming you into their houses in heaven which never rot, never break down, never depreciate, never need a new roof. This is a quote by a commentary by Gildon House. He says, a disciple must relinquish all his possessions, not merely money and material things, but also his dear ones and everything that his heart clings to. Yes, even his own life, his own desires, his own plans, ideals, and interests. This does not mean that he must sell all his possessions or give away all his money or desert his loved ones and become a hermit, a beggar, or a wanderer. You know, you think about that. If you just gave up everything and walked away, who would feed you? So here's what he says you should do. It means that he must give Christ full control over his whole life with everything he has and all he possesses, that under Christ's guidance and in his servants' service, he should deal with these possessions. Like I said, it looks a lot more normal. Paul says, you hey, don't leave your job. Keep working. You want to renounce everything you have to Jesus? Don't leave it. Just use it for him. There may come a time where you have to sell and give to the poor or give to people or help them or help the gospel. Many of y'all renounced a lot of your possessions to Lottie Moon a few weeks ago. That's part of this verse. But not just the stuff you give, the stuff you keep also is for the Lord's service. And you now operate it as a steward under his guidance. As Gildon House uh, ends his quote, he says, in most cases it means that a man in his ordinary life or normal life places all his work 
at Christ's disposal to an extent that while still remaining possession of his still obtaining possessions of his goods he honors and serves him with those goods so that's it the three things discipleship it's a change in identity a change in mission a change in ownership now why the word normal i said normal discipleship why not a word like radical or you know awesome or something like that the reason I use the word normal is that this is for every Christian. Jesus did not just teach his disciples they had to renounce everything. The 12 apostles or those people who originally heard him. He tells you and I the same thing. Jesus' words are for normal Christians, not just a special radical subset. The second... This is for the normal course of your life, not just a certain time, not just for a certain group meeting throughout the week. The, the purpose of a D group is not so you can be a disciple for 60 minutes and then go back to everything else. It's so that as you are a disciple, you can use 60 minutes to help others get on that path and to sharpen their pathway. And last, I don't think God wants you to stop having lunch, to stop playing golf, to stop shopping, to stop taking vacation. Kids, he does not want you to stop doing your homework. He doesn't want you to stop playing sports. He doesn't want you to stop hunting, fishing. He doesn't want you to stop going to the doctor. He doesn't want you to stop these things that people do in their normal lives. Luke 14 is so that as you do those things, you'll remember whose you are, you will remember how far Christ wants you to serve him, and you will remember not only those two things, but who your stuff belongs to. As a disciple in your normal life, you can impact more people than I could, Daniel could, Pastor Wade, or others who are oftentimes stuck up here taking care of stuff. As normal disciples, you can be the only Jesus people see. And as they see you in your normal life, completely devoted and loving him, they will want more of what you have. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.